Well, outside of the Bible, my favorite book is The Pilgrim's Progress. If you've been here for a while, you know this. I refer to this book often. But I thought it might be helpful just to hear how that book begins. This is a man named Christian, and he has a dream. So as I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place. That means he laid down. And I laid me down in that place to sleep, and as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place, with his face from his own house, and a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. And I looked, and I saw him open the book, and read therein, and as he read, he wept and trembled. And not being able longer to contain, he broke out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? If you're familiar with the book, there's a man named Evangelist who comes and tells Christian what to do. That he is to flee the city of destruction and to head toward the celestial city. Because destruction is coming upon the world that he has called home for so long and that he needs to, by faith, press on toward the promised land. These opening lines of Pilgrim's Progress, they... Christian has this, this dream, and the book is a recounting of that dream and all of the various characters and circumstances that he encounters along the way, and each of those characters and circumstances have, they have deep meaning that are intended to help him and us as we read that book to make it toward the celestial city. Along the way, he encounters all of these pictures, as it were, that aid every step and remind him that every step of the journey is heading somewhere toward that celestial city, and that there are either things that are going to help him to make it home, or that will hinder him from making it home. The book of Revelation, I believe, serves us in a similar way. God has, in His mercy, given visions to the church through the Apostle John that are intended to help us to see all things in light of the end of all things. That are intended to strengthen every one of our steps toward the celestial city that is promised and laid up before those who will trust in Christ. The book of Revelation begins this way. Our text this morning will be the first three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Now the way we're going to approach this first sermon is a bit different than the way we'll approach some others. It's going to feel like two sermons. You thought, oh, three verses this will be quite short. And it may be quite short. We'll see. The aim is not to be long, but it's to be helpful. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to start by, I want to give you seven orienting observations that will assist us as we study this book. Meaning, as we study the book, what are some things we should have in mind to help us to interpret it faithfully? Some orienting observations. Then I'm going to come back and we're going to read the text again, and we're going to pull out three important observations from the first three verses. All right? So seven orienting observations. Number one, this is a revelation. It's a revelation. By the way, they'll all start with A. I was very proud of myself for that, but anyway, it's a revelation. A key observation is the very first word in the book, in our English Bibles. It's the word the, which implies singularity. So, let it be said, this is not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. That's important, just so you know. It's the book of Revelation, not Revelations. Number two, the author. The author. Uh, the Apostle John is the one who uh, has composed this. We saw that God made this known to his servant John. Uh, we'll learn more about him uh, and his role in this as we go through. We'll watch John. Basically, we're going to watch John watching these visions as they, they, they come. This is the same John who authored uh, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He is the same John who had walked with Jesus and was known as the beloved disciple. This is important, I think, because you remember, this man loved the Lord Jesus as he walked on the earth, and now he sees him as the glorified Lord Jesus in heaven. It's also interesting that John is the only um, apostle who was not martyred for his faith. Though, legend has it that um, persecutors attempted to kill him. They attempted to boil him in oil, but he wouldn't take Evidently, God wanted to keep him alive to give this word to us. This letter is written from a solitary confinement on the island Patmos. We'll talk more about that next week. So it's a revelation. That's our author. Third thing is the audience. This is very important. The audience. Look at verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Again, next more, more next week on this, but... This letter is written to seven congregations. This is not just some kind of movie that's put out there unintentionally with just a bunch of visions. This is a letter that is intentionally written to congregations that are just like ours. Seven different churches that were historical churches that had things going on that we'll see in the weeks to come that Jesus is going to walk among them. And he's going to evaluate them. And he's going to encourage them. And he's going to reprove them. That Jesus cares very much what's going on in these churches. Even as he walks among us this morning. Caring much about what is happening here. The people in this congregation, these people are tempted by sin. They're pressured by the world. They are persecuted by people who hate Jesus and hate his gospel. Now, some in their study of Revelation have seen these seven churches as a bit of a progression of church history. I just want to say I think that's a very Western interpretation, and I don't think it's at all what's represented here. Rather, we're going to find that each church has characteristics of churches in every age. I think we'll find 
we'll be able to relate with most of the churches and things that are going on there with things that are happening here. But as we're reading this, we've got to remember the, the big backdrop behind this book and the reason that God gives this book to these churches is, is that there's persecution going on. The Roman Empire in the first century hated Christians, and they systematically persecuted Christians for their refusal to embrace the emperor cult, meaning the worship of the emperor as the emperor as a god. Christians would not do it because their king is Jesus. Remember when Jesus was crucified, they said, we have no king but Caesar? The true people of God says, we have no king but Jesus. And that's getting people killed. Because you say that and it's off with your head. They'll burn you on a stake and use you as a, a lamp for parties, is what Nero used to do. A lot of blood was shed by the people in these churches throughout church history because, and, and many like them, because they would not bow a knee to worship another Lord. This is obviously true for many of our brothers and sisters around the world this morning. In the Sudan, in, in Russia, right? in, in Nigeria, North Korea, in Cambodia, in Colombia, all around, in India, all around the world. Right now, brothers and sisters are losing lives because they will not bow a knee to whatever the pressure is of the day. And this is important for us because as we read this, if we merely let this be some kind of fantasy that we're trying to figure out, we're going to miss the point of the encouragement that it is intended to have for us. This book is written to real churches who are facing real pressure to renounce Jesus, just like you are. So that's the audience. Fourthly, there's allusions to the Old Testament. Allusions to the Old Testament. Depending on who you read, most, most commentators will agree, though, that there are some 500 allusions to Old Testament texts in the book of Revelation. That's more than every other New Testament book combined. Of the 404 verses here, some 278 of them allude to Old Testament passages. Though, interestingly, there's no direct quotations. The reason that that's so important is because the book of Revelation is the completion of everything that God has promised from Genesis 1-1. Everything that God has promised from the beginning is coming to fruition through what Jesus has done. And what John is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he is seeing God constantly look back at all of the prophecies and pictures and promises that he made to his people throughout history and the way that Jesus is fulfilling them which is intended to give us great courage that whatever he promises in this book is true for us as well. If you wring out the book of Revelation, you just get a big old puddle of Old Testament. This, this is an Old Testament Bible study intended to encourage us. So, so often when we study the book of Revelation, we're always looking forward, but in order to understand it rightly, you've got to look backward. And see what God has said in the way that informs what he's doing in this day and the days to come. Fifthly, fifth observation. This is apocalyptic imagery. This is apocalyptic imagery. Um, in verse 1, 1, you see the revelation of Jesus Christ there. It's the word apocalypsis, which we get the word 
Apocalypse, right? Now, when you hear the word apocalypse, what do you think of? Will Smith going to save the world from aliens? You think of burning buildings, overturned cars. You think of zombie invasions, right? Well, what God wants to do here is he wants us to, uh, to sharpen our thinking a little bit, to not live in a fantasy world. Because all of those things that humanity can't seem to escape in all of our movies, in all of our dreams, in all of our fantasy books, is that there's something beyond us that's going to bring us to an end. That's in our hearts, whether you believe or don't believe. It's because we're made in the image of a God who is doing something in history, and it does have an end that ushers into a forever new beginning. The word apocalypse or apocalypsis, means, it means revelation or disclosure or unveiling. This is what's happening here. God is unveiling or disclosing this truth to John in a vision, which is really important to understand because the book of Revelation is intended to be seen. Apocalyptic literature communicates messages through vivid images that portray spiritual realities. So it's different than the Psalms or than an epistle where it's just straightforward teaching or poetry. God is communicating to us through pictures. There's lampstands like in the tabernacle that we studied last week that represent the churches where the light of the world is supposed to be. You have a dragon like a serpent of old, who is Satan. It's very interesting. Most of the images that we find are drawn from the Old Testament, particularly Ezekiel and Daniel and Joel and Zechariah. You're going to see a lot of those in the Exodus. God's going to draw a lot from the Exodus, which is why we studied the book of Exodus before this, because the book of Revelation is the greater Exodus. Uh, One commentator said it this way, really helpfully, I thought, Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. Don't try to puzzle it out. Don't become preoccupied by isolated details. Rather, become engrossed in the story. Praise the Lord, he said. Cheer for the saints. Detest the beast. Long for the final victory. I don't know about you, but that is super helpful. Because it is so easy to get in the midst of all the trees that you lose the forest of what God is communicating in this book. I know for me, when I first became a Christian, all I studied was the book of Revelation. I studied, I read Hal Lindsey, I read Tim LaHaye. I was, if you just said, what's the locusts in the book of Revelation? Apache helicopters, duh, everybody knows that. Like, and I was always trying to figure out how everything's fitting together. I didn't know anything about the rest of the Bible, but I knew about that kind of stuff. I remember that when I used to drive to seminary, and there was a radio, uh, uh, what do you call it, show that was, that was playing uh, on, on my way, was it way down? I, remember it was, I think it was the way back. And every single day at 3.30, you would have this guy come on, and he would give you some kind of news headline, and then he would tell you, turn to the fourth pole of Revelation. This is exactly where you happen. Yesterday, you know, you know, Bill Clinton did this, and now today it's this. And then, like, you would just try and tie, showing us how whatever was happening in the news is being fulfilled and how we're moving closer to the end of the, lo- the world. 
not how God wants us to read it. It's not how he intends us to read it. It's not a puzzle that's supposed to be solved, but rather, in many ways, it's a portrait that's intended to be held, to be in awe of. That you see it, and you appreciate it, and you're humbled before it, just like you are before a great piece of art or a great piece of music. It humbles you. It amazes you. It moves you to some kind of response deep within. <clears throat> so the book of Revelation, <clears throat> because it's apocalyptic literature, is intended to be interpreted symbolically. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, this is where, all right, this is where I, 15 years ago, would have piped up and been like, hold on, bro. I thought we were supposed to interpret the Bible literally. Are you losing it? Are you not interpreting the Bible literally anymore? To which I would then say to myself, listen, I fully agree. I, I agree. The literal meaning of symbolic literature is that the symbols represent things. So the right way to read it is symbolically. If that's what the intention is, to try and import things and say, oh no, it must mean this or that, is not as helpful. We'll see much more of that as we're going through. But this is one of the things God does often. Think about it. In, the, in, in, the, in Egypt, he used plagues to illustrate that he was sovereign over the gods. Jesus, when he taught, he often taught in what? Parables, stories, painting pictures for the people about life. Revelation is filled with pictures as well. Symbols that have meaning that we will grasp as we walk through, Lord willing. So it's a revelation. The author is John. The audience are these seven real churches. There's allusions to the Old Testament, some 500 of them. It's apocalyptic, apocalyptic imagery, which is symbolic and should be interpreted symbolically. Then sixthly, the arrangement. The arrangement is important to understand. Now, there's many opinions regarding the arrangement or how the book is outlined, but most would agree uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 19 is, is a helpful orienting verse. If you look at Revelation 1, 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Likely the vision that he, we're going to see this week and next week in chapter 1. Those that are, which is the examination of the churches in chapters 2 and 3. And those that are to take place after this, chapter 4, 1 through 22.5. Now, I'll probably push back on myself a little bit as we get into the, the visions and, and see that some of, the, some of the things that are representing those visions bleed back before what was going on in these churches to the, the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection, but generally, this is how we should, should see it. Now, there's two primary ways that people interpret the book of Revelation and this, this arrangement here. The first is a chronological or linear interpretation, which means that these events all follow each other um, chronologically. Um, sometimes people see it as having already happened, that it's all fulfilled. That's called the preterist view. It means the, it's the Latin word for past. It means it's all fulfilled through the destruction of, of the temple and in, in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Or the most yeah, predominant view, and uh, at least these days, uh, the popularized view is that it's a, it's a view of a, what's about to happen. It's all future. That none of this stuff has happened yet. And we should see it all as, 
as things that are about to come and that as soon as that linchpin is pulled, the dominoes start to fall and the end comes. Others see them as happening right now, like the guy on, on the radio. But, but that view, basically, it's each event follows one another chronologically, from 4-1, basically, all the way to the end. That's not the way that we're going to be approaching the book. Um, which, by the way, I just want to say, for I'd say the first 10 years of my Christian walk, that was the way I interpreted the book. So you can love the, you can love the Lord Jesus and, and approach this differently than me. Happy to talk with you about it. Um, hear me out as we walk through this series. We're all going to see someday. I've always said that, that that 30 minutes of silence in the book of Revelation is for everybody to correct their end time view, and it'll be, it'll be okay. But I, I think we want to not miss the forest for the, the trees. So then, if it's not chronological, then how should we see it? Well, I, I think we should see it cyclical or parallel presentations, if you will. I believe the book of Revelation is is a series of seven, you're going to see numbers, we'll talk more about how the numbers are significant next week, (coughs) seven presentations of the same information. You have seven parallel descriptions of the same events, each providing some sort of unique insight into something that the churches need to hear. But they all cover the same period of time, what you might call the gospel age, from the resurrection of Jesus to the return of Jesus. You're going to see that again and again and again. And it's interesting that the visions intensify as you go through the cycles. But each present the gospel age from a distinct vantage point, highlighting different aspects of God's judgment on the unbelieving world and the redemption that happens through Christ alone. We'll see more about that and how that all fits together in, when we get to chapter 4. And then seventhly and and finally, for these orienting observations, is the aim of the book. The aim of the book, or what we often call the big idea of the book. All right, you ready? Jesus wins. There you go. So, (laughs) that's the shortest big idea I've ever had. Um, Jesus wins. When you walk away from this book, the one thing that you're supposed to be really sure of is which team to be on. That Jesus wins. There's no doubt. There's no recount. There's no rematch. You can't even have a rematch because evil is forever gone. Jesus wins. So for all that we might have questions about as we journey through this, do not miss the fact that Jesus wins. Some of you are like, I feel cheated. I want a longer big idea. Okay, well, here's a bigger big idea that's the same thing. (laughs) That God will fully and finally, fully, completely, finally, once and for all, defeat sin, Satan, and death through his son Jesus. Because that's true, we must take courage and remain faithful until he comes. Because God will fully and finally defeat sin, Satan, and death through His Son Jesus, we must take courage and remain faithful until He comes. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. So remain devoted to Him no matter what. Jesus wins. So continue to believe His Word no matter what the trendy false teaching of the day is. Jesus wins, so continue to endure persecution in whatever way it comes. 
Jesus wins, so resist the temptation that will call, even while you're listening to this sermon. Jesus wins. Now, those are the first seven orienting ideas that I think are helpful for us as we approach the book of Revelation. Let's look at the text one more time, and then we're going to pick out three more things to consider. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, again, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. The three final points in our remaining time together is that Jesus is glorious. Jesus is glorious. Blessing is promised. Blessing is promised. And thirdly, time is short. Time is short. Jesus is glorious. Notice how he begins here, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is about Jesus. It's the the apocalypsis, the revelation, the disclosure, the unveiling of, of Jesus. The visions contained in this book serve to remove the veil so that we can see God's promised plan to destroy evil through His Son, Jesus, and for us to see that Jesus wins. It's intended to help you and I to behold and to believe in Jesus all the more. It's intended to help those of us who do not yet know Jesus to see Him as the one before whom one day we will have to stand and give an account. When someone gets done reading the, 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 the book of, of Revelation, you're supposed to walk away with a heart that is full of love and amazement for Jesus. A soul that is stirred with affection for Jesus. A mind that is sharpened to better know Jesus. A will that is surrendered to the person and the purposes of the Lord Jesus. This is really important because this is not how revelation is often used or what normally results or oftentimes results. This book is not intended to merely provoke speculation, but rather to ponder the Savior. It's not to inform our curiosity, but to amaze us with the Christ. Jesus, as we will see here, is glorious. One of the words that shows up 42 times in the book of Revelation, 15 times in the first five chapters, is the word throne. We are, like Isaiah, ushered in here through a vision to see the throne room of God. And we are to understand that the origin of this revelation comes from the highest authority in the universe. It comes from the throne of God. God the Father wants us to see His Son, Jesus. In one sense, we get 
Similarly, uh, an invitation like what happened at the Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John were called up and they saw Jesus glorified. The book of Revelation is intended to give us the same sort of invitation. Where there, you remember what happened? Moses and Elijah were there. Moses, law, Elijah, prophets. What happened to them? They faded away, and who remained? Jesus. The book of Revelation is filled with the law and the prophets. It all points to him, and then it all fades away, and Jesus is who is to be central in our minds after we read it. And the same thing that the Father said to Peter, James, and John there on the mountain, behold, this is my Son, listen to him, is the same message that we're to get as we study through the book of Revelation. Behold, this is God's Son, listen to him. The whole Bible works this way. All revelation comes through Christ and all centers in Christ. The book of Hebrews says especially that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. Now, there's two symbols that are used for Jesus, not only two, but two symbols that are used for Jesus in the book of Revelation. A lion and a a lamb. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, if you were just guessing, which one do you think would show up more in the book of Revelation? You'd think the lion. At least I thought the lion but I was wrong. I was a lot wrong. So, the lion of the tribe of Judah shows up one time. Jesus as the lamb who was slain shows up 29 times. You see, it is true that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It is important as we read this book to understand that he is the devouring judge before whom all must bow. Listen, Jesus is no weak, green tea latte, sipping hippie like he's presented today. God bless you if you like green tea lattes. I'm not against that. I'm just saying, <coughs> Jesus is often presented as this weak guy who's just kind of down for whatever. He's super hip. Well, that's just not the way he's presented in the book of Revelation. He is the glorious victorious lion of the tribe of Judah who will devour all who will not bow a knee to him. Listen to this from one of the last scenes in the book of Revelation, Revelation 19. John speaking, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it, this is Jesus, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. His, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, oftentimes people think, well, that's, that's, that's his blood that he shed for sinners. But if you know the book of Isaiah, you know that the king comes and that the blood that is on his robe comes from him trampling out the winepress of the wrath of God. This is the blood of his enemies that is on his robe. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." 
And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now listen, when everybody starts trying to quote Jesus nowadays, I just don't hear him referring to that. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah with the sword of the word of God in his mouth and he will rule over his enemies. That's true. But 28 times more, Jesus is referred to as the lamb that was slain. You remember John the Baptist at the beginning of his ministry? As soon as he saw Jesus, what did he yell out? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, how is he going to take away the sin of the world? Well, that Lamb, Jesus, will fulfill all of the pictures of all of the lambs that have been slain for thousands of years. And he will be crucified on a cross. He will be slain. And then what will he do? He will rise from the dead. And now... What his, him being slain now accomplishes for any who will turn from their sin and trust in him is that they don't have to be slain for their sin because he was slain in their place. The lamb is seen as slain in the book of Revelation, yet he's standing. He's victorious. He's a victorious slain lamb. Now you're like, that's weird. Well, it's, it's weird, but it's, the irony is intended to arrest you. Jesus defeats the wicked rulers of the world as a slain lamb, which is its weakness. This is what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he talked about that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The world would think, yeah, if you're going to have a ruler, come back like that lion. And he is a lion, but he ain't just a lion. The way that he gets there is by first being a lamb and then being raised and then he comes back as a lion. It's the foolishness of the world that you want to know God? Trust in a Savior that was crucified on a cross now some 2,000 years ago and was put into a grave. That's madness. Unless it's true. And unless he rose from the dead, which he did. Now, notice here how we receive this message about Jesus. Again, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So, did you catch the chain, the, the chain there, the baton pass? God the Father reveals this to Jesus the Christ, who reveals it to an angel who gives it to the Apostle John, who gives it to his servants, the seven churches, and then every church that whoever since has, has read it. It's important to notice here that God the Father does all things in relation to us through his Son. This is what he's doing. He's working through the Son. It's also interesting that God gave this to Jesus. Do you remember Matthew 24, 36? Jesus said, no one knows the hour, not even the Son, I think that this verse right here gives a strong reason to believe that Jesus knows now. He didn't know during his earthly ministry, but now the Father has given him the revelation of how it's all going to unveil and, and how it's going to, to come about. The Father has now given it to him. It's debatable, but I, I think that's the case. <coughs> 
Notice there, then Jesus then gives it to the angels who are God's messengers. Hebrews 1.14 says they're ministering spirits sent out for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So the way an angel is assisted here, gave this message to John, who then gave it to the churches, and now we read it. And again, you have John the Apostle. He gives this to, to Christ's servants, the, the church. Church. Now, the last thing I want to say about Jesus being glorious here is this. For all the turmoil that God knows that we will face in the future from the time that this is written, everything that he knows that's going to happen in the world, he wants us, he wants us to know that he thinks that what we need most is not some kind of political strategy, is not some kind of investment assistance, is not some kind of insurance advisement. What we need most is to see Jesus. We need to behold him in his glory, to see him for who he is, to be assured of what he will do. We need to behold Jesus and see that he is glorious. Now why? Why is that so important? Because a major theme that runs through the Bible is that you become like what you behold. You become like what you behold. What you stare at and are devoted to is what you begin to become like and what you begin to hope in. What you love impacts, impacts how you live. This, is, this shows up clearly in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, you have a beast who is the opponent of Jesus. And the beast calls people to not worship Jesus, but rather to worship him. And there's lots of dangers of worshiping the beast, right? He's a tyrant, lots of bad stuff, all this. But one of the things that's really interesting is that if you follow the beast, you become like the beast. Everybody's always trying to figure out what the 666 reference is that's on the forehead and on the hand. It's the mark of the beast. You're like the beast. You look like the beast. You think like the beast. You act like the beast. You follow the beast. When people look at you, it's clear who you're with on your forehead and your hand. Just like for the Jewish people, the Shema, you, you, you put the Shema on your forehead and on your hand to say, I'm with Yahweh. Everything I think, everything I do, I'm marked by Him. But in the book of Revelation, if you follow the world system and the beast, it's going to be evident who you're with. We're with the beast. What you behold is what you become like. And everything in this world is going to tempt you to behold things in the world. Especially for those of us who are believers, this is why it's, it's so unsatisfying to get caught up in the political drama that happens around here. It's because it's, it's, not what, it's, not, it's not where the hope is at. And it can conform you. I've talked to so many of you who say, I'm not the same as when I got here. Something's happening to me. Sometimes that's really good and sometimes it's really bad. And that's what's happening. There's a war going on for your devotion and your affection. The, the, the Psalms say those who make idols will become like them and also all who trust in them. Friends, what you, become, you behold, what you behold is what you become. What is it that you put your time, attention, and devotion into? Sports, stocks, 
gossip, controversy, news, politics, whatever you're always thinking about is what you will become like. 2 Corinthians 3.18 gives us the other portrait of becoming. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 1 John chapter 3 talks about the fact that if we, if we set our hope upon Him, we will become pure just as He is pure. If you behold Jesus, you become like Jesus. Have I shared with you the sunflower illustration before? Y'all forgot it. I'm going to tell you anyway, because it's a good one. You come back to it. Do you know how a baby sunflower grows? It pops up. It puts its little face. It, it naturally bends toward the east so that when the sun rises, it'll follow it. And you can YouTube this. It will follow it through the entire day until it sets in the west, and then it will naturally come back around and wait so that in the morning when the sun rises in the east, it'll do it again. And that's how the flower grows, by beholding the sun. It's an illustration in nature about the way that we are to be transformed in the image of Christ. The book of Revelation is intended that when we wake up in the morning, the message of it is put before us. Jesus wins. He is coming soon. And that is where our gaze is set throughout the day. And as we behold it, we become like Him. Jesus is glorious. And we're to see that. Pray that He would show us His glory. The second thing to note here is that blessing is promised. Blessing is promised. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Bible trivia, what's the only book of the Bible that pronounces a blessing for reading it? The book of Revelation. It's the only book in the Bible that gives you this, this promise of blessing. The word blessing, it means a state of happiness or joy or favor from God. God promises blessings in the book of Revelation. This is the first of seven of them. Blessed are those who read and hear and keep what is written, chapter 1, 3. Blessed are those who die in the Lord, chapter 14, 13. Blessed are those who remain pure in expectation of Jesus' return, chapter 16. Blessed are those who are invited to the Lamb's wedding feast, chapter 19. Blessed are those who have been killed for their faith, chapter 20. Blessed are those who share in the tree of life in the city of God, chapter 22. And blessed are those who keep the words of this prophecy, verse 7. He ends with the same promise that he began with. Blessed are those who read and hear and keep. Commenting on these blessings, Charles Spurgeon said, thankfully John did not say, blessed are they that understand this book, for surely there would have been quite a few. <laughs> it's true. But we do have hope to understand and to respond to what this book gives us. And this is why I think God gives this promise of blessing here. It's an added encouragement for us to read and to respond to God's revelation here. Read, hear, keep. These are all in the present tense. So it's not just a one-time reading or a one-time hearing or a one-time obeying, but let these words be continually before us and in us. The word read here, it, it simply means, and it's in the singular. It's the only one of these three words that's in the singular. It assumes it's going to be read by somebody like me or somebody else who's up front who's going to read it before a gathered church. So do not be ashamed 
Do not be intimidated. Do not be apathetic toward reading the Word of God. To hear the word, it means to receive news or to pay attention. What that means is for you and for me, that as the Word goes out, we must not be apathetic or passive toward this book. But he's, he's telling us here, intentionally tune in to what I'm saying. L- listen in faith, believing that what God says is not only necessary, but it's good for us. Part of the blessing of reading this book is that it gives you a perspective that changes everything. It's about to be football, team, football time. I never use illustrations of sports. I'm going to give you one right now. So, 2017, it was the Super Bowl, New England Patriots versus Atlanta Falcons. Jeremiah shared this uh, a couple weeks ago in a class. It was great. I'm going to share it with you. Now, let's say you can get invited to the Super Bowl party. You're going to go and you're going you're gonna to watch this game. And, but it's a DVR party, meaning everybody has not watched the game, but it's been DVR'd. But you cheated a little bit, and you watched it beforehand. Now, this is going to change the way you're going to watch the game. Because if you went there, everybody else doesn't know what's about to happen. All they see is that in the first half, the Atlanta Falcons absolutely dominated the Patriots. Smacked them around, as Patriots should be smacked around. (laughs) They were thumping them so bad. So bad that with... 8.31 to go in the third quarter. The Patriots were down 25 points, 28 to 3. Everybody thought the Falcons had this thing wrapped up. And if you were there at that party and you had on a Patriots jersey, what do you think the Falcons fans might be doing to you? (laughs) Goat, Tom Birdie the goat? No, we're eating goat tonight. No, taunting, smirking, laughing. But what if you knew that Tom Brady was about to do what Tom Brady does, and he was about to break off one of the, well, the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history, and about to lead the Patriots all the way back to win at the very end? How would you watch that game a little different than all the other Patriots fans in there? You'd have peace. You might even say, listen, guys, you still have time to become a Patriots fan. I got an extra Patriots jersey in my in my trunk, I'd be glad to give you. Just trust me. You're gonna, you're gonna wish, you're gonna wish you with Brady. Don't get, don't. You're gonna watch it very differently because you know what's about to happen. All the twists and the turns that if you didn't know, you would have been tossed to and fro. The Book of Revelation is to serve in a very similar way. Jesus wins. You know what's gonna happen. You know what's gonna happen. Quit freaking out. You don't need to freak out doesn't mean there's not hard stuff. There's really hard stuff in this life. But for the believer, what this book does is it tells you who wins and that you should cling to him and not lose hope. And when people taunt you, you say, listen, I know what's coming. I know what is coming. We're to read it. We're to hear it and to be shaped by it and to keep it. Did you catch that there? Keep it. It means to obey or observe. As we hear and we see what God has given us, it is intended to impact our daily lives. We heard, um, uh, it was read earlier, James uh, 1, John read, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
If hearing this lesson is an end for you, if getting your end times chart together is, a, is the end of itself for you, you are being deceived. We're misusing the book. Certainly we want to figure some stuff out, but it's intended to change the way that you live. The last days are intended to inform our living in these days. Remember, this book is written to seven churches and he is walking among them and he's giving them this vision to encourage and correct the stuff that is going on in their lives. So as we read this, we are intended to have the same impact. To resist the worldliness and the false teaching that will call out to us to compromise. To encourage us to continue to persevere no matter what. It's interesting, the revelation opens with a promise about obeying, and it concludes similarly. Revelation 22.7 says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So as we study, pray that God would help us to obey what we see here. And then finally, the last thing to notice here is that the time is short. The time is short. Revelation 1.1 the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. John, who wrote this book also to, a, to one of the churches in Ephesus, wrote, Dear children, it is the last hour. One of the things that we come to understand is that in the span of history, of human history, that we are in the last hours. That the resurrection of Christ ushered us into what is known as the end times, the last hours. Now, before I was a Christian, I would have heard that and been like, yeah, buddy, for sure, right? I mean, this is written, what, some 2,000 years ago? And uh, it says this stuff's supposed to soon take place. Well, I don't know how you count in time, but the way I see it, I mean, I would, have, I would have definitely mocked this idea that it's coming soon. That's a scare tactic, trying to keep all the religious people in order. Well, God knows that. Listen to this from 2 Peter chapter 3. Know this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. He goes on in verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on them will be exposed. The reason that we think that soon is not happening is because we don't see things like God sees them. God is the eternal one who created time and history. And he says, listen, you, you don't see time like he sees it. We indeed are ever increasingly closer to the end of all things. Listen to this from Romans chapter 13, 11. Which, before I read that, for those of you who might agree with the, the scoffer here, just like I would have years ago, what I would encourage you 
to consider is whether or not you might be seeing things from too limited of a vantage point. God is talking about human history here and that we're nearing the end of it. And when we hear this, we're intended to understand that every time we breathe, we suck in mercy and that we are one moment closer to seeing God himself and giving an account for how we live. Listen to this from Romans 13, 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is now nearer to us than when we first believed. Friends, the time is short. Jesus says he is coming soon. Listen to this, Revelation twenty-two twenty. the way he ends. <coughs> he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen, come, yes, Lord Jesus. There is a constant pull for your devotion, for your affections, for your lives. Jesus says the time is short. He is coming. So as we go out today and when you face temptation, when you sit down tonight and you're tempted to maybe watch something that you shouldn't watch, remember the time is near. He is coming soon. Tomorrow when you go to work and somebody starts giving you garbage for following Jesus and you're tempted to hold back and to not say anything, remember the time is near and he is coming soon. Later on this week, if, when you feel that dark cloud of depression come and you feel like you're never going to be able to escape it, remember the time is near and he is coming soon. This week when things go your way and it couldn't have gone better and you can get disillusioned to the fact that this world and whatever good things you get in it are not an end in itself. Remember that he said the time is near and he's coming soon. When you get anxious about whatever it is that pulls on your time and your, your attention, remember he says the time is near, he's coming soon. The next time there's a shooting and you just think, how much more of this madness? Remember the time is near and he's coming soon. Next time a hurricane comes and you just wonder about friends or family or what it might do. You just remember the time is near and he's coming soon. The next election when you start freaking out, just remember Jesus is coming soon. When the diagnosis comes and you don't know what you're going to do, the time is near, he's coming soon. When friends betray you, the time is near, he's coming soon. Whatever we face that's going to pull on us to quit trusting in Jesus We've got to remember that this book is intended to show us the glory of Jesus. And there is a promise that is there's a promise of blessing for those who will trust and hear and obey. And then we can take heart because time is short and he is coming soon. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true in a world that lies so often. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom and insight and understanding and humility as we come to your word and in this study. Father, we pray that you would, you would help us to continually behold Jesus. Father, we are constantly tempted to look away from him and to the comforts of this world. Oh God, would you help us to know how to enjoy comforts without being owned by them? And would you help us, because of what we understand about the end, to be willing to sacrifice any comfort? 
for the glory of your name and the good of others. Father, would you give us an urgency to proclaim the name of Jesus to those who do not yet know him? We pray even for those who are in this room who do not know him. Oh God, would you burden their hearts and humble them and help them to see that you have been nothing but merciful to them? And might they bow a knee in faith before the Lord Jesus? Or for those who are struggling, God, would you fill them with your spirit and help them to keep trusting no matter what? Oh Father, would you help us to believe that Jesus is glorious? to believe that there is a blessing that you have promised and that the time is indeed short. Would you help us to see all things in light of that? We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.